Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word of the Lord. All right, we're going to reflect on this text uh, for the next little while. In 1951, uh, a Christian ethicist named Reinhold Niebuhr wrote a book, and it shaped the way that many modern Christians have thought about the world around them. His book is called Christ and Culture, and in it, Niebuhr uh, described five ways that Christians can interact with the world, with the, the cultural forces. Now, in some ways, I hesitate to describe each position because in, in seminary, there's like whole classes about this, like, let's take a semester and walk through all of these. But however, you know, I'll, I'll take my best shot here in a second. But Niebuhr's trying to answer the question, how, how should Christians interact with the world around them? Should they fight with it? Should they, like, not, not literally, not with swords and stuff, but should, should they fight with it? Should they try to rule over it with Christian principles? Should they ignore it and form separate societies? Should they, should they try to transform it? And as I mention each of these options, you'll see kind of shadows and hints of different Christian movements, including us as a church that's self-consciously planted in the city, tries to care for the city, prays for the city. We're not immune to or outside of this discussion. And by the way, if you know Niebuhr's book well, you can tell me your guess of which category I fall into after, after the service. But, but Niebuhr's framework, it's influential, it's widely used. It still comes pretty recent, 1950. That was, what, 70 years ago? in the timeline of Christian history, Niebuhr wasn't the first to realize that Christians have to think carefully about how to interact with the world, but rather, all the way back to the very first generation of Christians, they were already like, wait, how do we do this? What, what, what about this? And, and then down through the ages, through governments and rulers of many kinds, Christians have been asking these questions. It didn't matter if, if, if the rulers of Christians were, were communists or capitalists, if you had a king or a tyrant or a prime minister, didn't matter if you lived in a democracy in Athens or in Ottawa, these were questions that had to be considered, particularly if the government is hostile to you, as is the case in 1 Peter. Peter writes to a people ruled by Rome, ruled by this you know, power, powerful pagan, you know, many, many gods, society, and Christianity was viewed with suspicion and even sometimes hated. There's political pressure, there's economic pressure, there's social pressure, and, and Peter is writing to them to comfort them. You know, from our best historical work, we don't think there's sort of outright persecution when Peter wrote his letter. It doesn't seem like people are being thrown in jail or killed yet, but there's just a lot of things that are beginning to squeeze these people. Now you can see the parallels between them and us are, are, are there. 
But First Peter has proved relevant, not just to you know, Canadians, but, but for thousands of years, as Christians all over the world have grappled with these questions about what do I do in a place that doesn't feel exactly like home? And that's because this letter, we believe, is, is breathed out by God. It's given to us by God who loves us and wants us to live wisely in worlds that have, in world that have governments and societies and cultures. And what does Peter offer to these people? Well, today he offers them three things. He's going to talk about their identity, that'll be part one, their hope, that'll be part two, and then their trials, that'll be part three. But first of all, just a little bit of background. Who's writing this letter? In the, in the first line, it says it's from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, to be an apostle, you can't just sort of claim that. I can't be like, hey, look, I'm an apostle. It meant two things. It meant, first, you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. So it's reserved for those people who'd walked with Jesus, known him, talked to him, seen him, loved him, seen him do miracles, watched him die, all that kind of stuff. And then secondly, apostles were designated by Jesus himself, called by him to take the gospel into all the world. You got to have both of those things if you, if you get the title of apostle. And so Peter... As one of the disciples, he became an apostle. He is a man who has known great highs and great lows. He walked on water. He's performed miracles. He's preached to thousands. He's seen many turn to Jesus. But also, he doubted a lot of times. He denied Christ publicly. He misunderstood the kingdom of God on multiple occasions. He tried to start a sword fight, you know, at one point. Like, like he had some lows as well. And in this way, Peter's kind of a lot like us. His faith journey wasn't just, well, upwards to the right, always getting better, always growing. It had its ups and downs. But despite all of those things, he's one of these chosen apostles, these chosen witnesses, and therefore gets to write parts of Scripture, you know, under under the influence and help of the Holy Spirit. Who does Peter the apostle write to? He says there, right there in the start, he says, elect exiles of the dispersion who live in these places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those places are probably largely unfamiliar to us, but they are cities in what was called then Asia Minor, what now we would call Western Turkey. Anybody like, where's Western Turkey? If you picture like Mediterranean, Israel's kind of on, on, on the far eastern edge. If you go north and then west, that's how you get to Asia Minor if you're in Israel. And this letter was likely carried to these cities and towns by means of a messenger. And interestingly, unlike Paul, who often wrote to larger churches, this seems more written to small bands of Christians, little pockets of people living in these places. The the Christian church in all of these places was likely quite small at this time, but he calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, what does that mean? Let's talk about each word in turn. To be elect simply means to be chosen. Just like we elect government officials, you know, school board representatives, whatever. In the same way, the scriptures speak of God electing his people. The ones who believe in Jesus are chosen by God. Now, I know some of you, when I say that, are like, it doesn't feel like that. <laughs> it feels like when I, when I believed in Jesus, I freely chose to. And look, from a human perspective, that is what it feels like. It feels like in this life, we choose Jesus, not the other way around. But the biblical explanation, it just kind of goes like this in short. No one would choose God if left to their own devices. If God had left us all completely alone, none of us would believe. So therefore, the ones who do believe are the ones to whom God has changed their hearts, he's worked on their minds, so that they do come to him, so that they do choose him. So these people are chosen, he says, they're elect, but at the same time, they're exiles. Exile, that's probably more, more familiar to you. It means to be not at home. It means to be a foreigner. It means to be living in a place that not, that's not yours. And now even in this introduction, Peter, Peter is teaching them that to be one of God's people means you don't ever feel quite at home in the world. 
You may always be viewed with a bit of suspicion. Earthly powers may see you as, as a bit of a subversive. You're not quite on board. And then he says, you're part of the dispersion. Now, some translations like the word scattered here, that's fine. But the Greek word under, underneath it is literally diaspora, like, like just the, the dispersion, what, what it says. And this word was normally used to describe Jews who were living, uh, who were exiles from their homeland. But as far as we know, Peter isn't writing to a church that's primarily Jewish. The churches in Asia Minor were primarily Gentile. But as we're going to see later, and right here, he is applying Jewish terminology to these new Christian believers. He, he's sort of appropriating Old Testament stuff for them. And by calling these Christians a dispersion, he's making a point that these, these new believers in Jesus are the people of God as well. They may be scattered among the nations or whatever, but they belong to Jesus. So what is this identity? What's kind of put the pieces together? Peter tells them they're chosen, but they're also not at home. They belong to Jesus, but are scattered among the nations. They exist in the world, but a little bit uneasily. They live in these places, Pontus, Pontus, Cappadocia, but they belong to another kingdom. Now, how does one get that identity? Well, Peter basically invokes the whole trinity. If you look in verse 2, he says, one becomes a Christian, one, one becomes this an elect exile of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God. And foreknowledge is not like knowing in advance, like knowing that the, the Leafs will win the Stanley Cup, you know, next year or whatever. And Well, we, we're pretty sure they won't, but, uh, but, but rather, it's not foreknowledge like just knowing a fact. It's rather insisting that history is unfolding in, in conformity with the plan of God. The people to whom Peter writes have become elect exiles because God has made them that way in his plan. Now, how did that knowledge unfold in history? Peter says, by the working of the Holy Spirit who caused them to be obedient to Jesus and to be sprinkled by the blood. So what, what's he saying? He's just saying, look, in real time, in real human time, the Spirit is working on our hearts, enabling us to believe, enabling us to be cleansed from sin. That's the whole sprinkled blood of Jesus part. And to live in obedience to, to what we read in the Scriptures. So in the lives of ordinary men, women, and children, the three persons of the Trinity cooperate, they work together, and they make enemies of God into elect exiles of the dispersion, into, into Christians. And a person gets the identity from God. But I want you to notice something. Even here, Peter's kind of fighting against two impulses a Christian often has. In the face of a culture or a city, a town that's, that's, that's socially hostile or politically hostile, some Christians are tempted to withdraw. Now, here's what withdrawal sounds like. Man, it's hard to live in this neighborhood. No one else goes to church. Maybe we should move. Or, I just need to get to a place where I'm surrounded by a lot of Christians. Or, or this city, this job is, is too hostile. I need to get away from here. And to these people, Christians, who feel tempted, who feel this impulse to withdraw, Peter says, of course it feels like that. <laughs> you're in exile. You don't live at home. Of course people see you a bit suspiciously. You're, you're in Bithynia. That's, that's where you are. God has called you there. Of course your neighborhood feels a little bit foreign. Part of you doesn't really belong in that neighborhood. You're a citizen of another place. But Peter doesn't want Christians to withdraw. So he kind of is normalizing it. But alternately, not, not withdrawal, but some Christians when faced with a hostile culture think, uh, I don't want my coworkers, I don't want my neighbors to know what I really believe. It'll make things awkward. Or I, I can't live the way that God wants me to live in this world. It's just too hard. So in, in this case, the, the temptation is not to withdraw, but to sort of assimilate, to give in. And Peter says, of course it feels like that. Of course it feels hard. 
You've been called by God to be a different people. Of course your values are at odds with all the values of your neighbors. They belong to a different country. But he's urging them, don't assimilate. Don't give in. You're elect. You've been chosen to be different. And so Peter, even in this little introduction, it's going to be a theme throughout this letter, but he says, like, don't withdraw. Don't assimilate. You're scattered in the world, but you are chosen by God. You are these elect exiles. This is your identity. Now, secondly, what's their hope? Well, if you look in verse 3, he begins verse 3 with a doxology. That just means like a word of praise. He says, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by beginning with that, he's just saying, look, the Christian life, all the stuff that's going to follow is ultimately a praise to the God who makes all and sustains all. He's the source of everything. But Peter says, because of God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So why is God to be praised? Because he has given his people a new birth to a living hope. Now the ESV there, uh, it says that he has caused us to be born again. I don't think that's the right sense of the Greek. No, not a professional. But most translations just use the word given. Or just simply say, you know, God has done something. Which I think is a better, a better translation. So if that word caused bugs you, you know, I kind of give you permission to ignore it. But, but Peter is just saying, look, in God's mercy, we are born again to a living hope. And the emphasis really is on God's action, not on ours. But the result is we have a new life with new hope, with living hope. Now we'll talk about hope in just a second, but Peter has this kind of run-on sentence that we need to figure out the rest of it before we come back to this. The reason he says we have a living hope is because Christ has been resurrected. Christ has been raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus means if you're a Christian, you, don't, you, you follow a, a, an alive God. You don't have a dead faith, you have an alive faith. Jesus has gone ahead of you into the heavens, and as Peter writes, he is guarding and protecting your inheritance. So if you are a Christian, uh, Peter is saying you are, you're heirs to a kind of fortune, you know, not, not, not gold and, and silver, but like Israel with the land, there's something that belongs to you if you've been saved by Christ's mercy. In the meantime, verse 5, Peter tells us, God watches over us in this life, guarding us, protecting us, preparing us for when Christ will return. That's that, that's that a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time that refers to the second coming of Christ. So, so there's just a lot in here, and I went really quick through it. What is Peter trying to communicate to these elect exiles? You can think of it this way. That a Christian is not a person only of this life, nor are they a person only of the next. Just like in the first part, remember, he said, don't assimilate, don't withdraw. Now he's saying there's hope for this life and there's hope beyond this life. And he doesn't want us to abandon either. See, in this life, he's saying God's power works in real time to change people's hearts. Um, and, and in our day, God is working, like right now, in Ottawa right now, to, to, to work, to protect, to watch over the people of God, that they don't lose heart or fade away. See, there's, there's not only promises in Christianity of something that's to come. There's real stuff here for, for Monday mornings. But there's also stuff that points beyond this life. This life isn't all there is. And to Christians who are suffering from social ostracism, or if they've lost their, lost their houses or their jobs, Peter says, don't you go worrying about inheritances. There is an inheritance that, that moths can't eat and thieves can't steal and rust can't corrode. And Peter tells them, Jesus himself holds on to it. He has prepared it for you if you belong to him. 
And in addition, in the future, there's a final salvation coming. It's not here yet. Some evil things have happened or are going to happen. The wicked are going to flourish, but it's not always going to be so. In the last days, a great salvation will be revealed and the elect exiles will be saved to never be endangered again. But this is why Christians have a living hope, because the resurrection of Jesus gives us resources for this life and the life to come. Now, in October of 2020, which was about 10 years ago, uh, Statistics Canada released a large report on mental health. Now, this is only about six months or so into the pandemic, so you know you can multiply it by whatever you need to multiply it by. But here are some things they found. Uh, October 2020, a 13% reduction in Canadians describing themselves to be in excellent or very good mental health. About half of Canadians said they were, half of them said they weren't, but a general decline by about 13% in mental health. The greatest reduction in mental health was among those who are already experiencing difficulty. So if pre-pandemic, you already had a mental illness, you were already in a high-risk category, you already had a poor marriage, whatever, you tended to drop even more than the average person. Uh, the most affected age group in mental health uh, was the youth, dropping more than 20 points. In short, a year and a half ago, lots of us were not doing well. Anxiety, you know, marriage problems, depression, other mental issues. But in some ways, I don't even think we need Statistics Canada to tell us we're people in need of hope. Most of us could have predicted that just from watching our, our children or our friends or ourselves or our parents struggle. We need hope. And we don't just need a hope that says, well, one day you'll die and then everything will be okay. Like some days, maybe that's what you need, but other days we need to be reminded that God's power is at work in us right now. That our hope lives. And I'm not saying that's going to erase all the mental difficulty or if, that, if you have anxiety that maybe just believe harder or something. That's, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is God knows what it means to be human. Since he created us, he knows that at times we lose hope and we feel lost and we, we feel like giving up and we, we get dislocated and we feel friendless and we feel unappreciated and we get crushed by pressures of life. And we want to run or we want to fight or we just want to give up. See, what this passage is telling us is that God gives us right now, as the old hymn says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. You get, you get stuff for today, stuff for tomorrow morning, and you get stuff for the next life. Now, like you might say to me, I don't feel that. All right. Some days I don't feel it either, but I'm reminding you, and I'm reminding me, if Jesus has come back from the dead, if he's ascended to the Father's right hand, as the scriptures say, if from there he prays for us and prepares a place for us, as the scriptures say, then we do have a living hope. There is strength for today. There is bright hope for tomorrow. It's there even on the days you don't feel it. You know, in, uh, it's the end of January, almost February, and spring feels like an eternity away. But you know, you know how in spring, when, uh, at least in Ottawa, there's still like some snow or ice on the ground, you know, little patches here and there, but already at that point, like the tulips and the other spring flowers begin to kind of poke through. We kind of, we call those flowers perennials. Because even when it's winter, or even when it's winter right now, we know something under the ground lives. And that flowers will return in time. So I would tell you today, you feel like you're in a spiritual winter? Okay. Hope is not defeated. Hope lives. There is, there is something alive underground. 
And this message was true for Christians in small groups in little, little towns in Asia. And it's true for Canadian Christians in the middle of a pandemic, struggling with a society that doesn't exactly know what to do with us and is a little bit suspicious. Christ has been raised and therefore we have hope. Third, part three, their trials. Look at verse six. Peter says, in this, their living hope, in this you rejoice, though, for now, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Let's talk about what Peter is saying here. He says, he, first he uses this little phrase, if necessary. Now, if you're wondering, that doesn't mean trials are optional. <laughs> like, oh, if I like learn the right move, um, I, I can avoid trials. No, what he's kind of saying is there's a kind of divine necessity to trials, that God sends them our way. And that may be hard to understand, um, but what the scriptural teaching is that trials are not outside of God's control, but inside of it. God is not the author of evil, nor does he sin. Yet trials and difficulties of many kinds do come to us. They are permitted by him. Also notice, the various kinds of trials bring grief to those who suffer them. Peter says to them, you've been grieved by these trials. And I think there's a tendency sometimes in Christian circles that when a trial happens, we sort of rush past the grieving stage because we're really, really keen to emphasize, well, what is God doing in the trial? And we'll talk, about, and we're going to talk in a minute. Peter does give some reasons, but just notice here, the trials cause grief. And the Greek word is like, I think the other translations are like suffering, pain, sorrow, like not good things. And so just, just pause here for a moment. Things happen in our lives. Trials happen in our lives and they hurt. And if you are in a difficulty, it is not more Christian to pretend that something doesn't hurt or it isn't hard. That, that's not more Christian. Peter's telling us, of course it hurts. Of course it's hard. That's like the literal definition of the trial. And it hurts when friendships end or relationships are broken. It hurts when someone betrays you or it hurts when, when a neighbor shuns you or a boss passes you over for promotion. It hurts when society distrusts you or sees you as subversive. It hurts to go through illness, mental or physical. And it's painful to live in a pandemic. We've all lost a lot. So many things canceled. So many different kinds of hardships. So much loneliness and isolation. It's okay to be grieved by these trials. It's what it is. And we can grieve while we also understand God is doing something through them. He is. Now what does Peter say God's doing? He's saying two things. First he says they refine our faith and he picks up on this kind of familiar image of gold being refined by fire to describe what trials do to our faith and if you're aware of goldsmithing I think is the word anyways but you know they, they heat up gold and because different minerals and rocks have different melting points or whatever you can heat gold and, and sort of boil it and it, it, it cooks off all the impurities. So what, is, what does the metaphor mean? What, what's Peter saying? He's saying trials have a way of showing us little, little impurities and imperfections in our faith. And it burns them away, which also kind of sounds painful. But it, but it leaves us with this stronger and purer faith on the other side. Maybe you found this to be the case that uh, trials and difficulties have surfaced certain kinds of self-love or self-trust in your heart. Or you found a certain species of pride or you discovered you love possessions more than you ever thought or you found an unhealthy need for control or, or whatever. Without trials, sometimes these things go undiscovered. But the heat, you know, when, when it begins to boil underneath, the heat of difficulty raises them to the surface where they can be dealt with. 
See, Peter tells us, trials like fire with gold, they test us, they refine our faith. And secondly, he says, trials produce precious faith that will result in reward at the return of Jesus. If you kind of look after that second dash there in verse 7, Peter reminds us, tested faith will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So they're preparing us for the return of Christ, he says. First, because when Christ returns, it will be known as Judgment Day. Everyone will be revealed, will be judged for who they are. That phrase, may be found, hints at that kind of grand unveiling. But trials right now are producing a faith that will be judged by Christ as genuine. And further, he says, it results in praise, glory, and honor. And the primary meaning here, this is speaking of the reward that that was promised earlier in verse 4 to those who trust in Christ. To those who endure, those who persist through trials, they'll be rewarded by Christ. Now, to be clear, praise, glory, and honor, it rebounds from us to God as we return praise to him for all he has done. But there's just clear indication here. It's pretty straightforward from Peter. There is indication of reward from God to the one who perseveres. Maybe think of it this way. If you're willing to undergo pain for the sake of Christ, if you're you're willing to face difficulty and trials, that makes much of God. It points to his worthiness. And such faith will be rewarded by God. In uh, France... 1685, uh, the Edict of Nantes was revoked. And the Edict of Nantes was a, a ruling by the, uh, uh, earlier by one of the kings of France that basically granted religious liberty to Protestant believers, often known as the Huguenots or the Huguenots. And that edict was revoked by Louis XIV, and it led, because it basically removed religious protection for Protestants, it led to widespread fighting, persecution in France. Protestants who were a minority in the country had their worship services banned and they were end up being imprisoned and killed uh, for their faith by the Catholic majority. One Huguenot believer caught during a worship service was imprisoned for his faith along, of course, with many others. Yet we have a record of his testifying at his trial and he said this, he said, my chains are the chains of Christ's love. And what he meant by that is that the, the trials of this life were producing faith, that the chains weren't just sort of metal, but, but, but they, were, they, were, they, were, they were producing a faith that will be rewarded by Christ himself. See, what do trials do in the life of a Christian? They're not meaningless. It's not just meaningless suffering. It's, it's not punishment for a failure to appease the gods. Uh, suffering isn't because you have bad karma or something else. Even though they cause real grief, God is turning our difficulties into instruments of his own use making them to purify our faith and to prepare us for the coming of Christ. And Peter had seen this in his own life. He, he had been through many trials, and he had more trials ahead of him, what we know of history. Peter, you, Peter sees these positive results being reproduced in these Asian believers. And I think at verse 8 and 9, the last two verses there, he's almost marveling at them, because he says to them, you haven't even seen him, and you love him. You've never seen him, and yet you believe in him. Peter's like, I did see him, and I love him, and I follow him. He's like, somehow you have entered into the same faith as as me without ever having seen him. And he's sort of like, just like kind of astonished by all of it. But in this way, you see, we're very much like these these believers, these Peter's audience than Peter himself. Because you too, and I as well, we're called to believe without seeing We're called to love and obey in faith. And Peter encourages them saying, this kind of faith will be rewarded. Now we began today by talking about what should Christians do in the world? How should we live? Should we be apart from the culture? Should we try to transform the culture? What should we do? Peter is somewhat concerned with these questions, but he's actually, I think, trying to set our sights a little bit higher. 
As he told us what our identity is, what our hope is, what our trials do, the main focus actually hasn't been on us. Instead, in all these things, he's he's shown how God is at work. In almost every verse in this passage, it's the work of God that's emphasized, not, not our own work. Just read it again with new eyes. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then he talks about the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, the sprinkling of Jesus Christ's blood, the praise of God the Father, the mercy of God, the resurrection of Jesus, the power of God to guard us, the second coming of Jesus, and the final salvation. See, what Peter's, I think, doing is he's trying to show us no matter what kind of culture you find yourself in, no matter what kind of trouble or difficulty or mental stress you are under, the triune God who saves, redeems, restores, empowers, guards, guides, leads, and protects, and the God who will one day return, that God is at work right where you are, in your culture, in your neighborhood, on your street. So look, today you're trying to figure out what do I do with the trucker convoy, or, or I'm, I'm just trying to manage frontline work. I'm trying to balance a million responsibilities. I'm trying to deal with a hostile neighbor. Wherever you are, God is at work. He's at work right there. He's doing things. He's growing you. He's saving you. He's guarding you. And listen, today, if you don't know this God, if Jesus is still foreign to you, let me just invite you very simply. You can become one of his people. You can become an elect exile. It's not going to give you an easy life, but it's going to give you the presence of the triune God in the midst of whatever life you have. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful that you inspired Peter to write a letter to people a lot like us. People who are are trying to figure life out in the midst of a, a difficult culture and a confusing world who need to be told who we are and what you are doing. Help us to take these words to heart. Help us to believe anew today. Would you, would you drive these things deep into our soul? And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.